Got to get a job, 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 got to get a proper job, got to get a 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 proper job, got to get a 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 job, got to got to get a proper job. I've got one Hello, I'm Ollie Double, I'm a lecturer in drama at the University of Kent, and this is the proper job gradcast, in which we explore how studying drama at Kent could lead to all kinds of exciting and interesting careers in the arts. You'll be interested in this if you're currently studying drama at Kent and starting to think about what you might do afterwards, or maybe you're thinking about studying drama at Kent and you think, well, will I get a job afterwards? Answer, yes. Or, I don't know, you might be interested in this if you just like finding out about stuff and listening to conversations with interesting people. And this episode is a case in point because in every episode I interview a Kent drama graduate working in the arts and this time I'm talking to M or E.M. Williams who is a fascinating person, a non-binary actor stroke movement director stroke theatre maker stroke arts council grant successful person in their own words. Oh and a poet as well. I'm not going to say any more now because I want you to hear what they have to say. It's great. So here is E.M. Williams. Hello, my name is M. Williams. I am a non-binary theatre maker and actor from Northampton, and I graduated University of Kent in 2013. Wow, that's so long ago now. Thanks, yeah, cheers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, mate, I'm not trying to age shame you, okay? Bear no. in mind, I'm 56, all right? <laughs> Okay, and just just so people know, your your first name is styled uppercase E. Uppercase yeah, capital M. E, capital M. Yeah, and I'm playing with M, and I'm also playing with E M, like Ian, but with an M on the end rather than an N. Okay, I was going to ask you about that actually because I've I've seen you know your name on social media as so, yeah, so M, and I was like, okay, am I going to make myself a complete idiot by saying E M? No, um, people, it's kind of interchangeable at the moment. I think I'm I'm starting to lean towards E M a bit more, like E M Forster in terms of like art and creative work or like, you know, how people say like CK or JD or, you know, EM. Yeah. Not cool. uh, <laughs> but also M is quite a nice name anyway. Yeah, you know, but I think um, in terms of like trying to uh, reclaim my identity, like after people thinking that I was female for such a long time and being assigned female at birth or AFAB as a term, uh, AMAB and AFAB assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth. You know, it's uh, a bit too close to things like Emma and Emily. And I'm yeah. like, uh, it could be an Emmet, I guess. I like to say short for Emmental. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was, I was going to say that that would be a bit cheesy, but let's not go there. So, yes, indeed. Uh, sorry, I've got puns on the brain at the moment. So, so no, I, I get that point. That's really, that's really important. I mean, as, as the non-binary thing has come up, you know, has, has it had an effect on your career? I mean, does it, has it, has it had to tangible yeah <laughs> um I'd say so yes because I think it took me such a long time when you're in a career I guess that's so focused on gender especially on uh people who are assigned female at birth looking acting being everything a certain way you know it's definitely stopped me from expressing myself being able to express my gender in that way um you know com combined with you know other environmental factors and other parts of my culture but it definitely was it was it definitely contributed to uh, me taking a long time to figure out that I was non-binary and that I was queer it took it you know because the accepted media face 
especially of someone who is mixed race or brown, doesn't necessarily come with being LGBTQIA+. So, yes. <laughs> so it was kind of a freeing thing in a way, sort of knowing this about yourself. The funny, yeah, because I came out about two, three years ago now. Uh, the most of that like, I came out kind of to myself. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, you know, like in movies, it's like you come out and there's a big like reaction. It was like a gra- it was like grains of sand of coming out. And there's still some people who like my Irish relatives don't let me know because they'll try and convert me. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want that, right? You know, I deal with stress. There's been a lot going on the last couple of years. Don't you think? Um, yeah, just uh, too much to handle, right? <laughs> So, yeah, it's not really with a bang with a whimper, but in terms of my roles, in terms of the work I've been doing, in terms of my finding my clans and the people in my community, the people that have the same kind of like like-mindedness, moral compass, um, their hearts beat at the same time as mine. Uh, it took me a really long time to find that, I think, because I wasn't being true to myself and my own identity. And as soon as I did start finding those moments of myself, finding those people, finding those communities, finding my kind of support structure, in de- definitely in terms of what you need in terms of this industry, um, was when I started getting better, better, bigger, more roles because people could see the authentic me shining coming out, you know. So yeah, I mean, my, my career compared to the last, compared to the last, like, when I came out five years, I was grafting. The first time I moved to London, I had six zero hour contract jobs. Uh, just to like make way to be able to live here is expensive um, and in the last I'd say two to three years of course it's graft but it's also me finding my authenticity and then being able to go into a, a audition room or into a rehearsal room with that confidence that people go oh they know who they are I know that you know if things get tough they can stand on their own two feet I know that you know, I, they have such a sense of themselves and they've done the work to find themselves and they, they are practicing their self-care enough that I don't need to worry about that as well. And that puts people at ease, you know. I think that's brilliant. Thank you. And I just noted down finding your tribe because I want to come back to that <laughs> later on. Uh, but I, I realised I did slightly get ahead of myself. My second question was going to be, what's your current job and what kind of thing oh. does it entail? We, we, we've sort of touched on that now, but would you like to answer that anyway? Sure thing. I am an actor. I am a movement director. I am a theatre maker. I am currently uh, an Arts Council grant successful person, whatever the bloody hell that means. Um, And I've been working on my own R&D for a solo show. Um, uh, And I mean, for the the last kind of couple of years, I've, I've been working as a professional actor alongside pursuing my movement directing and my own solo work. I'm a bit of a poet as well these days. So there's some stuff. Also, you've got a lot yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, you've got some great credits as well. I mean, you've worked for the RSC, the National. Um, you've done, I, I didn't know this, but in, in my research for the today, Dinosaur World Live at Regent's Park Open Air <laughs> Theatre. I mean, come on. That's a dream job, isn't it? Do you know what the best part of that job was the kids I had to, there was a, a moment where and that was through a mate that was through I didn't un, you know what I did an unpaid job um whilst I was at Kent I got into lots of trouble with Paul Elaine because he didn't want me to do it uh and because there was that whole kind of like should you take professional work whilst you're doing your master's probably not it was hard um I ended up doing a job that took me to Japan someone on that job was a puppet maker self-taught puppet maker who ended up being I, side note I remember coming back the day I got back from Japan was when I handed in my thesis 
And Mike, who used to be on the arts office, looks at me and was like, are you okay? And I was like, just got off a 14 hour flight, here's my paper. Um, so I came back, you know, this must be like, what, seven years later. And that same puppet maker who was self-taught from the unpaid job, messaged me saying, um, you should really apply for this job. I've helped make the puppets on it. You're perfect for it. Uh, and so they got me in with the audition for that. You know, they got me in with the people. So, yeah. It's really cool. And, and I mean, that is absolutely perfect for this podcast. And that takes, in a way, leads to finding your tribe. So let's shelve that for a minute. Um, so, so you're, I mean, you're, you do lots of creative things and all of which sound exciting, uh, including acting, which I know a lot of our students will have that ambition as well. So, and you've started really answering, it, it's like the old two Ronnie sketch about answering the question previous to the one that was supposed to be or whatever. But my next question was going to be, how did you get from graduating to where you are now? Oh, well, it was hard. I mean, especially, you know, basically being in the closet to myself and uh, the rest of the world and my family, you know. Um, and also, uh, it's a very white industry. You know, we, we live in a white colonial structure. Uh, we live in a very ableist structure. We live in a very homophobic structure. You know, it's, uh, you, you, you think, I think Akala once said, you know, racism makes you paranoid and you think you are going a bit crazy because you're like, okay, I'm in the room with all these people. I remember one, one audition I went to, I got down, it was an all day audition, it's a dance audition. It started at 10 in the morning and I was there till 5 p.m. Uh, and it started off with 20 people and I was down to like the last two um, and they said to me you didn't get the part uh, because you look too much like the lead male's little sister and I was like you perhaps knew that at 10 a.m and I'm like I'm thinking would you ever say that to two white people would that ever happen the amount of people I know who kind of look like they're dating but kind of look like siblings anyway you put that apart that to the side but uh, <laughs> it's like oh just looking like their dogs isn't it <laughs> um, maybe not. That's really rude. <laughs> but yeah, I remember just thinking, oh, this is there's, there's certain moments that I'm like, okay, I need to follow my gut and my instinct on this because the people, the gatekeepers, the people in power, it's shifted now. Like, you know, I came out what like 10 years ago into this industry, like nearly. And I I, I found that the, the things that always kept me going were working with young people, working with communities, connecting to a community, finding my clans. Always, it was always the community and outreach stuff that was the most interesting and the things that fueled me as a person rather than just thinking okay I've got to get this credit I've got to get this role it was always the stuff that like you could see the bigger picture and you could see the bigger effect it was having on people you know and I think that's what lets down a lot of programming I mean like I don't know the, the programming of the old Vic at the moment I'm like we've just come out of a pandemic and of freaking Black Lives Matter movement are you joking are you kidding me and I think it's really exciting right now especially with Arts Council changing up the way that it is funding people. Arts Council applications are the worst, I hate them. Someone who is much more experienced than me basically helped me write it, the whole thing, because he was like, I'm really privileged, I'm really good at this. I'm aware that my voice gets heard more than people like you. I want to help uh, for a nominal fee that we can put into your budget of the Arts Council. I won't name his name because I don't know if he wants to be known, but that's just out of his respect rather than anything else because I'm sure he wouldn't care. And again, I think people are, it's not the dog eat dog world that I think people are shaping it out to me, like the 10,000 people for every role. That is true. And you've got to take that. But it doesn't mean that all those people that are out to kind of take the rug from under your feet. It's really nice to try and connect with those people and go, that was, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. You're totally allowed to swear. Hey. Yeah. Yay. I was like, oh, that, that was shit, wasn't it? That guy, you know, <laughs> was a real dickhead. And then you can go, okay, I don't want to work with that casting director. I don't want to work with that director. I don't want to work with that actor because they did this to this person. And it's not 
bitching, but it is, it's important safeguarding between our community. And it's really important, you know, Two things that I think are really interesting in what you've just said. First of all, that it isn't just the thing of, oh, who will have me? It's like, what do I want to be doing? So that's important. So maybe if you know, if you have a sense of what the work would be like that you'd like to be doing, then you can sort of head yourself in that direction. And it seems like that was a good strategy for you in terms of the th- things being community minded. Yeah. And I think that like I've had a lot of people ask me like in my, you know, Twitter and Instagram are so bloody brilliant and Facebook because you can just drop people a DM and the worst thing they'll do is just ignore you. And I'm talking about celebrities. Why not? I think like uh, randomly Kate Nash was in a Zoom call with me the other day and I dropped her a, a direct message on Twitter because I wanted to find a song of hers I heard ages ago. Like it was, you know, it's just it's an open world. And like the worst thing someone can do is just be like, no, or ignore you. And then they won't think about it ever again. And neither will you, or neither should you really, because it's the end of that encounter. So yeah, I, you know, there was one particular company that I was auditioning for. I messaged another mixed race actor I knew who worked for that company. And I said, hey, um, do you reckon I'll be the only person of color in this team? And they were like, I was. And I was like, that's just really good to know. It's good intel. It's the same as doing research and finding out, you know, going through the cast list of companies. you know, or, you know, hey, am I going to be the only trans person in this cast when we're talking about trans issues? Probably, you know, what, you know, the first, one of the first things I ask is, you know, if, if someone's doing a trans narrative, who's written it and why are they writing it? And who isn't one of the actors, because that is the easiest place to put representation, isn't one of the actors have you brought on earlier uh, in terms of disability as well? Like if you're trying to tell a genuine narrative, if you're telling a, a, telling a story with voices of color, how, how early on did you get voices of color in there? If you're telling a trans story, how early on did you think about getting a trans person in there? Tells you a lot about the people you're about to work with and can save you some very harrowing experiences. I, I was listening to um, an old edition, I mean, not that old, but you know, not last week of Desert Island Discs with the historian David Olishoga, uh, whose work I you know greatly admire. And he, he was talking about when he first started doing history on TV, how if he was, as he often was, the only person of colour on the team, he would have to explain to people why, if you're going to show people in Africa, don't just go to dancing as the first thing you think of, that Mm. kind of thing. And he was just talking about these kind of, you know, unconscious, ingrained ways of thinking and doing things, which if you're part, if you're not part of the group that you're trying to represent, you're very prone to, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because we are... I was having this conversation because um, part of my solo project that I'm doing is called The Mythical Norm and it's about who gets the privilege of being considered average. The fact that everything in the world is designed upon, around a person that doesn't actually exist. And I'm sure you can guess who he looks like. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of, I was talking to first about, the, like, you know, in terms of disability, one of the first memories that everyone has of a wheelchair is their mum telling them not to look at it. And there's a brilliant TED talk by a human that I'll find and link you later because I can't remember, um, talking about you've got to look at your inherent biases. You can't just ignore them or pretend they're not there. And they have, they talk about the, you know, there's inherent bias tests that are online that you can do, which I've done a bloody lot of, to the point where I've got to stop doing them so I can't be aware of trying to trick the system anymore. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And it's like, the argument is rather than being like, like, you know, that whole, I don't see color argument. No, I do see it and be really aware and stare hard at it because that's the only way you're going to realize that you have a learnt unconscious bias in you. So if you do find yourself looking at something, why are you looking at it? And ask, you know, ask for consent because that person might not want to tell you stuff, but always be able to be like, I can, as from a privileged position, 
I can put myself in the uncomfortable position to be able to ask questions, you know, as long as I have the consent of that other person. So for example, if someone has a disability, like they are visually impaired or blind, rather than them having to always tell me what they need in terms of a space, ask the question of how can I make this easier for you? How can I make this more accessible? And that makes me uncomfortable for about 30 seconds, whereas they've done it 20 times that day. And I think, it, it, you know, for me, it's a reminiscent thing of misgendering. Like rather than someone assuming my pronouns, ask me the question at the beginning, get it out of the way. And then, you know, mistakes can happen. That always fucking happens. But it's, it's like this much discomfort compared to this much discomfort of a marginalized community or minority community. Bloody hate those words, but arts council will love them. So I have to use them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing it, it, that, that I think it's probably time because it keeps coming up. But the other thing I think that we need to talk about is this idea of finding your tribe, finding, I mean, in your case, probably tribes, I imagine, in the sense of, you know, there are going to be different groups of people that you're going to identify with, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. I prefer to use the term clans, uh, yeah, just because okay. I feel like tribes are slightly appropriative. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah. Again, you know, it's just one of, those, one of those things. And like when I thought about it, again, from, you know, being around some African communities, and just like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. But also um, Indigenous, it's just, yeah, anyway. So, yeah, I use clans or communities um, or planets or constellations. It's quite a nice one. I think it's really important, isn't it? Because, I mean, certainly other people I've talked to for this podcast have said, you know, they were working, let's say, at the National and they they start to notice all of the other people of colour because there weren't that many of them and, and then talk and share experiences. And then that's a really important part of finding your place in the workplace. 100%, because then again, it just, if, if you have, if you think something and it's like, what's so great about the internet? And like, I didn't really grow up with the internet. I had about... 15 minutes of internet an evening because I had dial up in the middle of Mays Ashby, Northamptonshire, teeny, teeny place. Um, and even then it was so expensive that my parents used to like just rip computers out of my hands. So if, you th- if you're thinking a thought, anyway, they're just simplifying it right down, but you're not sharing it with anyone because you think it might be mad and you might be the only person thinking it. It's like that, but as an adult, <laughs> you know? And if you're thinking a thought like, oh, that felt... That made my gut feel or my heart feel my tummy feel a little bit uneasy and I don't really understand why and as people show you a bit more vulnerability in terms of their experiences you're like oh that sounds like a similar feeling to what I had with this you know and it's just connecting those kind of neural pathways of how those things might be related through microaggressions. And I think as well another part of that is that that is is a thing to do with I mean I mean it's not the same thing but I think it's connected is uh, the the business of networking and it, which I recognise is a horrible word because it sounds like a sort of management seminar term, but I think it's actually an organic process. I mean, you were talking about your friend who's the puppeteer who you work with at this point, and then suddenly this comes back in. So I think for me, networking is part of just it's just the people you know and what you can ask them about. I suppose. Yeah, it's also like so. I run. A, I keep telling you all the things produce a new writing night because when I started to get a little bit of traction I was like Frig it, I'm gonna make I'm always like thinking about okay I've got this hand on the ladder I'm thinking what's what can I do at the same time so I self-produced a new writing night and I've got a community of volunteers that come and basically the idea is no it came from the back of there's a lot of new writing nights out there that are all freaking brilliant um but a lot of them ask you to put in a lot of time for no pay and a lot of them are glorified reads really and so I was like, we can get from page to stage in a single evening. No one has to prep anything before they get there. They turn up on the night, don't know who they're working with, don't know what they're working on, they'll do some reading. 
Um, I make allowances for that in terms of access, in terms of anyone has any neurodivergency and wants a script beforehand, not a problem. But apart from that, it's, it's basically, I don't want people to, to put more energy in for something they're not getting paid for. Everyone gets a free drink off me, like or off donations. But it's also, it kind of is a bit of a gym or a kind of a bit of a, um, just something to do, isn't it, as well? Like, and that's kind of the way we run it. But that has become one of the strongest like networking opportunities for a lot of people who come there, who a lot of them are recent graduates. We were, <laughs> I started it, I used to work at a pub, the Boogaloo in Highgate, great on a Friday, Saturday night, recommend it highly, run by a lovely Irishman called Jerry, who was terrifying, equal parts terrifying and like was the dad to us all. And I did it in the back room, which was like, you know, it was a nice brick shed. And he was like, oh yeah, of course, you know, resident on a Monday, it's really quiet, whatever. And so I got some mates, they wanted to write some scripts. So I got some actors, was like, it doesn't pay, but everyone get a free drink. And the biggest complaint I had was that no one could see because 80 people turned up. And I was like, oh crap, okay. Uh, there's a need for this, especially in this area at the time. And Jerry was like, just do it in the main space and nothing happens on a Monday. So every, I think it was every two months I would, I would run this event. Did that there at the Boogaloo with Jerry uh, for about two years. And then Theatre Delhi messaged me and was like, you know, we've been seeing what you're doing. Uh, we've got a new cafe space. Uh, would you like to run it in there? Run it in their cafe space for a further two years. And then they were like, we're taking over the theatre space. Would you like to run it in the theatre? So it is, you know, perseverance, but also never like pretending that you're something bigger than you are. I'm like, I've, I, 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 this, is, this is all this is. Never hiding anything. Never making it being like, oh, this is something that is not. It's just people getting together, talking and doing things, their skills, practicing their skills, which is really, really hard to do when you're not in work. God, do I know it. <laughs> and having a chat. And we'd all go to like a pub afterwards, like when the Theatre Delhi literally kicked us out. And sometimes we were there, we went to a restaurant once until like three in the morning. Like some of us around the table, which, you know, didn't make the next day very uh, helpful, but I uh, didn't get much done. But, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, again, like, if you have privilege, which I have in space, despite being <laughs> a brown queer, uh, you know, what, what can we do with that in order to be like, okay, I've got this now, I've got this, what platforms and what opportunities can I make? There's that suggestion that there's two pools of people in the world, the people who've, who've had it hard, the people who think that everyone else after them should also have it hard because they had to have it hard, or the people who think they shouldn't have to have it hard because they had it hard. And I'm very much of the latter group. Second one. Mind yeah. you, if you said, I know I'm totally in the first camp, that would be scary. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to suffer. Yes, please. Mm, a little bit of suffrage. Nothing <laughs> so, so, I mean, uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is obviously we're hopefully coming out of it now, but we, you know, we've been going through the most terrible period for live performance. I mean, it's a terrible period, full stop, but it, it has had a terrible effect, the pandemic on the world of live performance, because it's not been safe for people to gather together in a space to watch something that's being performed in front of their very eyes. But you've done some quite interesting work during that period, including particularly, I wanted to ask you about Puck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't really know how. I, I came, the pandemic hit, and me and my best mate, um, we have quite a similar kind of like, we always go to the same castles because we're both not white and physical, basically, and puppeteers. And uh, there was a statistic being like, if you are AFAB and not white, you always end up with the ensemble roles. So all of us have got, you know, a musical skill, a singing skill, a puppetry skill. That statistic is getting a bit better now, but it was to be like 86%. I think The Guardian did a run on it. I was like, oh. So we were like tired because we were working solidly for about two, three years and we were thrilled for about a week. And then we were like, what is our purpose? 
what is my purpose without work? And what I found during that time, what was really useful was that I, I had to go home and look after my parents because they had been in the Caribbean and flew back on the 13th of March. And I begged them to freaking stay, but would they listen to me? So they didn't get hardly any of the run up, basically. And I had to just teach them what it was. So I was looking after my parents, going shopping for them, trying to tell them to stay away from Milton Keynes, um, which is a hard thing to do when you're in Northampton. During that time, I was doing a lot of writing. I was doing my Arts Council application, but I was also doing my writing as a poet and really getting into my meditation, really trying to figure out who I was, kind of like not be completely controlled by other people directing me all the time and be figure out who, who I am. And it's so, so in the, the day that I, I was in the bath, day that I found out about Perk, which was a bit like, I don't even know how they managed to make that great an ensemble through auditions on Zoom, because all the auditions were on Zoom and they were physical auditions. Um, and we had to like respond to a prompt and also do a self-tape, which was like one of the most hilarious self-tape prompts I've ever heard in my life. It was like, imagine you're in a forest and a tarantula the time that your head runs past. And there was, it was so funny. <laughs> there's fireflies and there's ah. And yeah, I was, I was in the bath and I heard that I got Puck. And then I, less than 12 hours later, found that I got the Arts Council grant as well. So it was just like a mad 48 hours. Because I also, I did a previous job before that, which was again, all self-tapes. And I think that my self-tape game has got, got up. I think that everyone should invest in their self-tape game. I've just bought a new phone because like my phone has literally died and the amount of self-tapes I've had to do, like the camera just doesn't want to work anymore um I've invested in you know I, I, I wish I'd done this back then but student loans save some money buy yourself a MacBook save it use that discount seriously I'm, I'm 30 years old and I've just bought myself decent technology it would have been so helpful to have <laughs> you know, save yourself a couple of a couple of you know deliveries save up and try and contribute that to some decent technology because I was working off the, off, I was half working off the laptops they used to provide in the temple. I don't even know if they do that anymore. You know, the little trolleys are full of laptops that used to right. My laptop would always break. I'm not very good for technology, hilariously. <laughs> so, so like, for people who don't know about this production, I mean, it was a, yeah. it was quite a tech-heavy production, right? Do you want to just tell us a bit about it? So it was a live motion capture experience called Dream based on A Midsummer Night's Dream, but specifically based on the sprites uh, and their hangings out in the uh, forest. And there's a reason people find live motion capture, or don't do live motion capture, <laughs> really. Uh, and that is because it's really bloody difficult to stay calibrated. I don't know if anyone's like, done motion capture before, but basically you wear a full lycra Velcro suit. You have a series of sensory nodules uh, attached to you through Velcro. You have a dashing little hat. Uh, gloves and they're usually sometimes they do uh, facial spot recognition markers as well but I didn't have those because Puck didn't have a face um, <laughs> <laughs> basically it was the complete opposite of everything I'd expected from uh, and everything I trained and learned from a rehearsal process because the tech came first as soon as we walked in we had to be calibrated we had to make sure that our system our bodies the way we moved was, was sucked in by the machine uh, and figure out uh, how to create a narrative around the tech rather than the other way around really which also changed every day so like you know I'd walk in and the tree would be in a certain position and 
when I came back the next day, sometimes even in that later that afternoon, that tree would be moved. But also actually in the volume in the space, it was just a, you know, seven by seven grid, letters on one side, numbers on the other. So you can say, okay, there is a tree roughly in A7, but it might be like lying across B7, A7 and A6. And like, okay, the central part of that, you know, but there's nothing there. Uh, and we had a couple of jumps and things and I ended up getting put some tape markers down for specific things that I had to cross or jump over. But you have to interact with things that aren't there. <laughs> I love motion capture. I want to do loads more of it. It was my first ever motion capture. And to have the privilege of getting that job straight off as first motion capture, like it's something I, it's going to get more and more prevalent in theatre for sure. So I reckon if you can find yourself onto some motion capture spaces in some places, yeah, there's some workshops out there and I'm pretty sure that some of them are quite affordable from what I've seen from agents pressing out, yeah. And so, and also what you're talking about is, is acquiring skills generally, acquiring a palette of skills that you can draw on for whatever jobs that you might come your Yeah, way. but it's also following your joy. Like there's, I hate gyms. I bloody hate going to the gym. I absolutely hate. The, 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 oh god everything about them like the smell like you know and the fact that you know as again afab humans you cannot be left alone in those bloody places and you know so uh my equivalent to gym is aerial circus you know i because it's it works your body out as a whole complete work it's expensive i managed to get a scholarship and they are there are places that do that do scholarships and do subsidize classes especially when you are under 25 so get in there that's 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 my workout that's my gym that and yoga and like again but also gym for the mind meditation like taking some time some space for yourself trying to exist in silence without netflix on or music or the radio it's hard it's really hard i'm only i'm only just learning how to do it and i fail miserably on some days knowing what makes you happy what your gut's speaking to you and saying because your intuition's always right and the times when i have got against my gut or my intuition or something's felt a little bit like not sure but okay I'll do it that's when I've regretted it you know I don't regret, I don't regret anything massively but that's when I've gone like I should have made the decision there or I should have laid down my boundary a bit more there that makes a lot of sense so I've only got a couple more questions the first one is how did studying drama at Kent help you to get where you are now I mean is the stuff that you've got from studying uh, drama at Kent that you have drawn on uh, in your your path to becoming the creative person that you are now Absolutely, 100%. I went to a school who told me student finance didn't fund drama schools. So that will give you a little marker about my education. The, the best thing, I think, and I wouldn't change it for the world now, I'm really glad that I didn't go to drama school, actually. Really, really stoked about it. Because I think a lot of people go to drama school very young before they've learned themselves. And it's a lot of someone else telling you who to be. And what Kent did for me was help me figure out a lot of who I am and who I was and what's okay and what's not okay. And also the opportunity to go to go abroad and go to another country. Um, you know, I'm from the Midlands. It's not an area that I really spent a lot of time in. Um, societies and everything really influenced me. Also taking, is it wild modules? I took yes. a wild module in French, you know, just to do something fucking else. And that's something that, you know, you don't get in drama schools. Um, I remember there was a class that I was there was a module I absolutely hated, but I look back on it now. I'm like, oh, that was a really clever module to put into the syllabus. And I think it was the one that you used to get people telling you about arts council applications and come in and who were. Oh yeah, um, the, that, that module's not still around in the same shape, but we do have sort of elements of that that we offer. It's really useful, and I hated yeah. it at the time. I don't know why. It was really it's exactly what you need. You need to be told what it's like in the real world. And I think that we all just wanted to do creative things, and I. Yeah, I, it, that was like, you know, I, I've learned so much in hindsight from those talks. I think, you know, I think it's like 
Little cauliflower came in. Uh, no, yeah. Little, am I right? Little bow. Little bow. Yeah, they're they're both the thing, actually. Okay. Uh, little Bob was is is the one that's still going. It's a theatre company that came out of Kent, yeah. and then Little Cauliflower was a was a puppetry company that came out a little bit later. But they're not still together. But I think they are yeah. still individually okay. working. Yes. Obviously, like the noise next door is still like going. Like you know, I saw a poster of them whilst I was in Portsmouth. Like they were in the same dressing room as me. It's just funny how you bop around. But I think yeah, again, drama school. I go into a lot of drama schools now. Um, I, I did a postgrad that was connected to a drama school, uh, a theatre, but wasn't really in the drama school, but I could go and use that space. And I have a lot, a lot of friends who went to drama school. And I think that there are a lot of things that they are learning now that I learned from going to university, you know? And it is opening up awareness, which just makes you a better human being as well, you know, as a, you know, moot point, as a side point to that, you know, as a nice little extra about other people doing other things and I think what was I was thinking of thinking a lot about like Monkey Shine. Yeah okay for benefit of listeners Monkey Shine was a, a student comedy night that ran all through the autumn term and then a bit later on it started running through the spring as well uh, in one of the student bars and it ran for 15 years believe it or not. Mm. It stopped uh, a few years ago for various reasons and what we have now is a thing called Funny Rabbit which is a monthly mm. comedy night at the Gulbenkian <laughs> where it, yeah you have a couple of professional acts on I compare it and then there's a couple of one or two slots for students to perform and what's great is it means they're performing to not just a student audience but yeah. also because they're on with professional acts so going back to that networking thing they can talk to them and get advice and so on so you know we, we're always trying to think of ways of kind of making opportunities for students you know the great thing about it is exactly that it's not just students coming to watch and it wasn't ever just drama students coming to watch monkey shine and you connect with these humans especially in something like the arts it's such a useful tool for empathy and it's why you find so many actors in every aspect of every industry of every creative industry i think because if you have a high enough empathy drive and if you can put yourself in enough of other people's shoes you're going to be you're going to be successful you know and i i really believe that you're going to connect to people and people will remember you for giving a shit <laughs> I, I really like that and also what I particularly like about it is that you've kind of answered my last question with, by saying that so you, this has been a pattern through, <laughs> through the interview because what I was going to say is what would you say to people who say that a drama degree won't lead to a proper job I think just look at the exact like you look at the Kent alumni there's people in law there's people in, like you know it's it's mad it's so cross-industrial if that's a word and the, the, thing, the more and more I bounce around, the more Kent grads I find. And the, the more, you know, I, in fact, I, um, I have a callback this afternoon with a Kent grad, you know, who, who is the, it's funny, I think he's the artistic director of the whole truck. And the first thing he did uh, when he came in, when I had my first audition on Zoom was, you're a Kent grad, aren't you? You know, um, and that is in the industry. But I know, you know, people have got into law and that's really useful also to still have that person as a friend. <laughs> creative industries, ad advertising, marketing, and technology, you know, it's, yeah, again, it's, it's a connection with people and an understanding of patterns and neural pathways of media, people, trends, and all of that is useful in every kind of industry. What I find particularly egregious is the idea that if you're working in theatre, that's not a proper job, because, I mean, you've got a, an incredible career I mean really interesting career where you're doing all these different things and that you've a lot of these you've built yourself through your own efforts and following your instincts and your intuition so the idea that that's somehow not proper is is crazy isn't it 
feelings. I think, you know, I, I, I definitely thought that, you know, um, especially I think it comes from my parents mostly. <laughs> it's like, you know, they ask me every so often, so when are you going to be on EastEnders? When are you going to be on Casualty? But again, the privilege that we have as artists and having that artistic drive is like we live, if you know what, it's a double-edged sword actually saying that. We live, sleep, breathe our jobs. We live, sleep, breathe creativity, don't we? And it means that I sometimes love to go into a bar job because it meant that the thing that I've got to do is over now and I get to go home and rest. Whereas like with my own solo project, I'm thinking about it 24 seven. It visits me in my dreams, in the bath, on the loo. Like, you know, I'm never, never gonna not think about it, you know? That was a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed talking to EM. I think they're a lovely person. I think they're a very interesting person. I love the bit about how during the pandemic their self-tape game has gone up. That's a nice little turn of phrase. But an even better turn of phrase is the advice about following your joy. What a great bit of advice for thinking about careers. It's not just about getting money in the bank, paying the bills. It's about having a fulfilling life. And so following your joy is a really nice way of thinking about that. Now, EM mentioned doing drama with a year abroad. That is actually still a possibility. So if you want to come and study drama and then spend a year between your second and third years studying abroad, you can do that. And you can find out more about that on the University of Kent website. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time for another episode of the Proper Job Gradcast. Got to, got to get a proper job.